This is from Acts 19, 23 through 27. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thank you, Mele. Um, again, we're going to get into our time here pretty, pretty quickly, so if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We've been walking through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. So if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and turn with me there? And if you don't have a Bible, hold your hand up high and keep it up, because um, we want to get you one, okay? We want to make sure everyone has a Bible to follow along with and to see that this is indeed the Word of the Lord that shapes us and transforms us. And um, if you don't own a Bible, you do now, okay? Please keep this one. We want to um, give everyone a Bible that they can make their own. Um, también si quieres la Biblia en español y no tienes, por favor, levanta su mano y diga español. Y si no tienes una Biblia, uh, eso es un regalo a usted. Y esta mañana estamos en Hechos capítulo 19. And again, um, we're in Acts chapter, chapter 19 and want to make sure everyone has a Bible they can read and follow along with and, and make their own. And um, with that, let me, let, me, let me pray for us again as we enter into our time of worship. I love what Stephen said at the very beginning there in our call to worship. As a reminder, if you didn't hear that or as we kind of come and go, that we are worshiping in all of life. Everything we're doing is, is, is worshiping. It's not that we come here and worship and then we don't. But the question is, who or what are we worshiping? And that will be significantly important as we get into this text together this morning. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to oversee our time. Again, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you call us to come before you. Thank you that you don't leave us to just try to figure it all out on our own, but you have sent the Holy Spirit to inform us, to enable us and empower us, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive the very word of God that is profitable in every way in our lives. So we pray that this morning as we come before you and before your word that we would have a posture of humility and of expectancy. We pray that we would take you very seriously, Lord, that we would not take ourselves seriously, but we would take you seriously and that we would respond accordingly and appropriately to the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, picking right up here, let's see, as we've again been in the book of Acts for about a year, since the very beginning of this year, we, we love just spending time in the book of the Bible, uh, in a book of the Bible consistently. We just, we don't like to hop around and go by theme or whatever. We, we like to spend time in this. So we've been in Acts and it's been incredibly shaping and good as we've seen the acts or the works of God on display. So in chapter 19, verses 21, we pick up as the gospel has been on the move, 
says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So we see there, again, where we were last week, and, and, and now here you see a number of different places Mentioned as the gospel has been going forward, has been on the move again, beginning in Jerusalem when uh, Jesus in, 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 in Acts chapter 1 ascended to heaven and he told his people that he would be with them and that they would be his witnesses throughout the entire world in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and throughout the ends of the earth. And then it went from there all over the place in exactly Jesus was true to his word and it started to go into those different places. And we saw that places that today, in 2017, we might not associate with the gospel, places like Syria, like Antioch, Syria, that that's where the church was, was growing and was thriving and then was sent out. There was a missionary movement from there cross-culturally to places like crazy places like Europe, <laughs> okay? It went to all throughout Asia and Europe and all these different places, and now we find ourselves in modern-day Turkey, and again, just in those first couple of verses that we're in today, we see that the plan is for the gospel to continue to go forward in different cultures. And so we have an opportunity this morning to ask, what does that look like when the gospel breaks into culture, when there's a, a cultural collision, if you will? Okay, something probably comes to mind even this mo morning, just before this, I was actually talking with a couple who are from the East Coast, and we were talking about timeliness and, you know, earliness. And when you get here and I said, yeah, every once in a while, you know, that's not our strength as a church, right? Showing up on time. And uh, we were kind of, you know, talking about some of those things and going back and forth, you know, East Coast culture, right? East Coast, West Coast, right? Um, Tupac, Biggie. Um, <laughs> some of you have no idea what that even is. So uh, we'll talk about that later. But all right, different cultural realities, well, when we were in Guatemala, some of us just went to Guatemala. I got to see that's even more of a cross-cultural experience than, you know, going to the East Coast or wherever. And a couple things I recognized that even our group had to deal with while we were there. And, and one thing, one was timeliness, right, things like that in that culture. But something that, that we found ourselves on the other side of that we had to really wrestle with was some of the people there in Guatemala that lead the ministry, Champions in Action, that we partner with, that we're really excited about. As different people from our group and another group in Pennsylvania that we were with would share our testimonies of faith in Jesus and how he's shaped us and changed our lives, we're, here we are in a different cultural context, and they kind of took us aside and said, when you share about Jesus' work in your life, do us a favor, don't refer to the tattoos you have on your body, even if they're glorifying to God. Right? And, and, and some of these people, one guy was an ex-Marine, he had a massive cross on his back and scripture all over him. And there were other people that had different things uh, that, 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 that reflected God's work in their lives, different scriptures and things and tattoos. And we felt a little kind of, you know, kind of put it back and we're like, well, why? What's the big deal? Like, are you making a law out of something that's not in scripture? And right, you could enter into that and kind of in our culture, in our context, I love pushing back on legalistic things that we like to replace or add to the gospel of Jesus. Okay, so this wasn't, I'm like, what's going on here? That's not right. That's not healthy. Well, in a different cultural context, okay, this, it's always a good idea 
to be more critical of ourselves and to uh, be more gracious with others and then to ask questions because there might be insights or ways that we can understand and grow in, uh, in the good news of Jesus. And so as we asked more questions, we started to understand that most of these kids that we'd be sharing with and engaging with and walking alongside have seen incredible violence, usually connected to gangs. Most of these kids have seen someone, even someone in their own family, killed by gang members. And in that particular country, in that particular culture, uh, tattoos are directly connected to gangs and gang violence and gang identification. And so, you know, in a vacuum, right, a cultural vacuum where there, all these things are, you know, where there's no cultural experience, then yeah, you might be able to qu- ask, you know, is it okay to have tattoos, is it not, whatever. But that's not reality, right? That's not the world that God created. There's never, let me just tell you, there's no cultural vacuum. Okay, the word of God breaks into a human context and and, and necessarily involved with that is, is culture, is how we relate with one another, how we live, how our values, our shared values are expressed and lived out and the things that we do. So we have to ask the question, what is, what, how do we, how does the gospel relate with culture, what, what happens there with human culture when there's a, a cultural collision, if you will? And in that case, yeah, it became a no-brainer to not say, oh, you're right, tattoos are evil and bad and, you know, we should never have them. And what, but, but to say, yeah, we want to love this particular context and understand you and definitely not put any roadblocks in the way of, of anyone hearing the good news of Jesus. And they, they were like, yeah, we know that you guys are, you know, Americans and you do crazy things like have tattoos. And, right? and, and I mean, there's all kinds. Right? I hope you're thinking even now, about what kind of cultural, maybe strongholds you have, it, whatever it might be. There is some that, like, the fact that I'm up here wearing jeans right now and my shirt's untucked or I don't have a tie on or a robe on or whatever it might be, all throughout the world we have these different cultural expressions. And so there's a question of how does the gospel relate? Like, what do we do with that? How do we inform that? Well, he, he, here's, here's what we see very clearly throughout all of Scripture and very pointedly this morning, is that the gospel, that word means good news, the good news of Jesus always encounters culture and confronts idolatry. Okay? Always the good news of Jesus encounters culture and confronts idolatry. And that's what's going on here, even as we just read, as Mele just read through the the, the Scripture this morning that this guy Demetrius goes on a rant and he gets upset and he starts talking about these things because he's rightly seeing that the gospel is producing change, right? There in Asia, he's talking about the gospel's going all over the place, even here in Ephesus, but not just here in Ephesus, all over the place, this gospel has been going forward and it's changing people. And he's like, guys, it's not right. They're changing our culture, What's going on here, right? And anger happens, and there's a riot in this, what's called the, F, the, 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 the theater in Ephesus picture, like a, a massive stadium, and a riot takes place, and all these people are getting upset. Well, why is it? Is he right? Is he wrong? What's going on? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, the gospel is encountering culture. And it is producing changes. In fact, look with me. I think I have it up here. But where we ended last week in verse 18 and 20 of uh, chapter 19, you see that changes were indeed produced as people put their faith in Jesus and began to follow him. 
says, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so there are indeed some things going on here that were culturally ingrained that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, when it breaks in and encounters this culture is, is, is changing and transforming, or even the word here I love that's used is prevailing. Okay, that w- as we saw last week, people were relying on different demonic spirits and different kinds of things, and we're, and we're even trying to manipulate and use Almighty God, and he's not into that, right? He doesn't like that. The gospel confronts that, and, and, and so these people are, 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 are coming, and they're acknowledging their sin in these different ways, and they're even burning these books that adds up to a lot of money. So, so what does that mean then? Does the gospel always come in and just, is it more of like a triumphalism? All right, let's be real here. The, the church historically has a number, of, a number of kind of dark spots on the resume, things like the Inquisition or the Crusades, where the gospel that came into one particular cultural context now started to prevail, and as it entered into every other cultural context, certain things change. It was now everything has to change, not just come and follow Jesus and figure out what that looks like in this particular cultural context. It was now you've got to talk like us, you've got to speak our language, you've got to do everything, right? No jeans, you know, ties only, robes only, whatever it might be. Whoever had the power didn't use that power, like Jesus said, and lay it down for the good of others and bring people to the cross of Jesus alone, but started adding and piling on to the gospel. So again, we ask this question, well, what does it look like when the gospel encounters culture? One author and theologian uh, and um, professor, Mike Goheen, writes, he writes a lot on this particular subject, and he writes something really helpful here um, that, that will help us understand this, this relationship. He says this, the mission of God's people involves a missional encounter with culture which both embraces the treasures and opposes the idolatry of all cultures. I borrow the term missional encounter from Wesley Newbegin. At the heart of a missional encounter is a clash of stories with an invitation to see the world in a new way. The people of God indwell God's story and by their lives offer an alternative and an invitation to come live in that story. Again, hear this, it involves both affirmation and critique of other cultural stories. A cultural collision, an encounter, a missional encounter. We've seen this all throughout the book of Acts, that God and his good news, his plans and his purposes, his character and, and what it means to, that he's forming a people who would be called his own, who would be ransomed and, and now empowered to carry out his mission right, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, throughout the ends of the earth. And you see here that, is it, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm creating a people in a vacuum who will all look and talk the exact same and carry this gospel in a very simplistic way and just cookie cutter, place them all over the place, and they will now dominate and transform every culture. No, as Mike Goheen so clearly points out, and even a couple weeks ago when, when the Apostle Paul was in, 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 in um, Athens at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, you saw him, right, affirming 
different parts of their culture before he engaged them and shared with them uh, the, the unchanging truth of Jesus in ever consistently changing cultural contexts. Right? So you see that there is the, the things that reflect and represent Almighty God and His character and His, His design and who He is, you celebrate those things that you see in all kinds of different cultures. And then you, ref, you resist and you push against the things that are idolatrous, the things that are broken, the things that are not honoring of Him. So how do we do this? What does that look like? Okay, first and foremost, let me say that, 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 that one thing, again, as I said earlier, is we need to be more critical of ourselves and, and, and more gracious with others that we don't understand. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, hear me, because I know, especially in our majority culture context here, we can be a little bit fragile, a little bit fickle, and, and we can think, oh, that, that means that there's no truth. No, that's, okay, let me just say, Jesus is absolutely clear that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Okay, there's, there is absolute truth, and he calls us to submission, to surrender, to confession, to repentance, to faith. It's not all roads lead to the same place or anything like that. Okay, I say that humbly and yet really confidently that the scriptures teach that abundantly clearly. Okay, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one through whom and for whom all things have been made and there is no other name uh, under which one can be, can be shaped and formed and called to heaven to relationship with Almighty God except through him. Amen? And, and yet we have these realities here that we are in today of of, 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 of embracing and entering into and relating with other cultures. And we, one grid that I think just to, to, to look through is, is one is, again, to, first of all, have relationships with people different from us. Okay, you see that all throughout the New Testament in all different places, in Corinthians here, and even in, in Ephesians, over in Galatians, different places where you see different cultures coming together, and, and there's this charge to, to come together as one people under the good news of Jesus. So one is to ask other people, hey, what are some of my own blind spots? What are some things that I don't see about myself that my own particular culture maybe celebrates that from your perspective is really broken? And then again to ask, and are there good things that you see? And, and tell others, man, I see this about your culture, and I admit I don't get it. Like I joked about not being on time, and I, I grew up, I, I've shared with some of you that I grew up in a predominantly African-American um, church congregation. That's where I was baptized. And that was one of these things was true, that we started, it was a lot more free in terms of when we would start, and then it was really unclear about when we would end, Right? <laughs> And then I found myself in college going to a uh, Presbyterian church on the north side of town, and, I and the pastor there used to say, you know, we're the you know, chosen frozen. If the Holy Spirit doesn't show up in 45 minutes, he's probably not gonna. So we're just gonna kind of keep that time frame. And there was a lot of good things there to learn and to grow. And yet again, I remember getting, just seeing the freedom and the emphasis on, again, surrendering to God and being together in community and celebrating and worshiping that I saw in one particular context in Right? Was it, oh, that's right, that's wrong? No, in a lot of cases, there's, there's a lot to learn and to, and to see and to celebrate. So, so when, we, when the gospel and we as a gospel-centered people enter into any cultural context, we always need to ask ourselves, what, what is broken? What do we need to reject? 
And then also, what can we celebrate? What are things maybe that we've missed that this particular culture really, really reflects God's goodness and his, and his, and his character in ways that maybe I've missed? And then what are things I can participate in? What are things that we need to push against? But, but God doesn't just say, oh, just keep it over here. Keep the gospel in a little box and it's safe over here. And then just, do, no, it's, it's messy. It, the gospel always encounters culture. And yet, the gospel also always confronts idolatry. And so it's important that we get that grid now as we move into the idolatry that's being con- confronted because, again, in a, specifically in our, you know, dominant majority white culture that we would, if we get right into the confrontation with idolatry, we might just lump everything in there, right? But these people are getting really mad. As you see, they're getting angry. And why is it? Is it because, you know, Paul comes in and says, hey, change your language, dress like us, do this, do this. No, they would be right in getting mad about some of that stuff. But the unchanging truths of the gospel, of what it means to be created in God's image and to have your identity and your purpose flow from him, where that is not happening, there's a confrontation. Okay, there's, there's a call out. And that's what the people are, are, are resisting and are pushing back against. Again, you see uh, down here in verse 28, they indeed get really mad. In verse 28 here, says, pay careful attention to your, no, I'm in uh, 21 here. says, crying out, says, men of Israel, let me get here, sorry, I'm, uh, thank you, 19, I'm moving, I'm, I'm trying to skip, a, skip ahead here. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. Thank you, right? We take God seriously, not ourselves. I didn't know I'd be the walking illustration for that, but I get to be this morning. <laughs> Chapter 19, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So what they're saying right now is, we're Ephesians, we're, we're from Ephesus, we're of our cultural, don't, don't bring your, your gospel culture into this culture, right? We're Ephesians, we do things this way, and Paul doesn't bend and say, oh, you're right, right, I should, I should change, I'm sorry, you know. No, there's, there's a sense of, 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 of direct strong confrontation here because idolatry is getting confronted. In the, in, the, in the verses before that, in verse 23 through 27, which we read at the beginning, there's this guy, Demetrius, is a silversmith, and he made silver shrines of Artemis. And, and so his whole business and all these people's business, all the, all the economic stability was based upon this idol worship, was based upon this, this, this being an Ephesian person meant that you worship other gods, that you worship Artemis, and you have the temple there, and, and you hold these things. And he's saying, whoa, whoa, who's this outsider? And he says, um, he says, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. He said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Come on. And, and yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what the good news of Jesus is saying. Idolatry is being confronted, and, and it goes on, and, and these people's whole way of life 
is being confronted. So what is idolatry? Okay, in order for us to understand how this relates to us, we need to kind of connect some terms because let's be real, it's a little harder to identify in our day, right? We could have some kind of cultural, historical arrogance and be like, <laughs> silly people, they have these little statues and little idols. We don't have any idolatry today. We don't, we don't worship other things. Well, idolatry is centering your life around anything or anyone other than God. It is finding your identity and your purpose in anything other than the one who said, let us make man in our image. Then God, who in the very beginning created all things and then created humanity, you and me specifically, to reflect himself, to display his power and his goodness and his might in, in, in bearing his image. And then we, because uh, sin, we said, no, thanks, God. We want to do it our own. We want to center our lives. We want to find our identity. We want to find our purpose around something else, right? And that's idolatry. Even in some cases, finding really, really good things and, 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 and replacing God with them, things that God even gave us and then taking them and saying, oh, yeah, not thanks for this because we're not even going to acknowledge you, God, but we're just going to ignore you and replace you, and we're going to replace the creator with created things. And this stuff happens on a, on a, on a societal, on a, on a bigger scale, and on an individual scale. And in this case, what we've seen here is idolatry on a societal level where entire systems and structures are shaped around replacing God. As Jesus said, the great commandment, great commandment, what it means to be a human, an image bearer of God, what it means to be a restored image bearer of God, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet we fail to do that because of the sin in our hearts, if we've not put our trust in Jesus, and then we participate in entire structures that are evil at its very core. Like we see here on display, again, whole things that, where statues are created and where the idols that people have found themselves in and given their lives to are now driving their entire structures. Have we seen that ever in our day? Well, no, we don't have a whole temple set up to a, a god Artemis, right, with a name that we give it and have little statues and figurines for the most part. But just in the 1960s and before that, and we even see it expressed today, one example of many where you see evil, broken idolatry on a societal level that's encouraged and embraced, something called redlining, where, 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 where banks and lenders would literally draw um, with a red, a red mark, a red pen, would, 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 would circle out and, 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 and identify entire, entire neighborhoods that were, that were made up of particular people of color, usually, and people of a particular socioeconomic background would say, we're not going to give loans to those people, or we're not going to let people from, from this background take a loan and move into this neighborhood because um, we want to keep things the way they are, and we want to protect neighborhoods. And now, as we look at it, we hopefully see really clearly racism, sinful, fearful idolatry at a very clear heart level being celebrated and embraced on an entire societal level. You see protests taking place, just like is happening here 
in Ephesians chapter 19, where people are, 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 are protesting and are getting together and are saying, no, don't change. This is the way we do things. Who are you to come in here and to change this? And God's people are called to speak into that and to call out the idolatry where the gospel breaks in and, and says, no, there's idolatry here. There's a confrontation and God's people are called up and, to, and are, are called to stand up and to say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what it means to be an image bearer of God. That's not what it means to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's broken. And guys, that's our history. And there are things going on even today that we need to be humble enough that we need to come honestly before God communally together as a people and say, God, where are our blind spots? Even right here in downtown Tucson, where there's a, there are a lot of questions of what's, what is urban renewal and what is gentrific- gentrification? What is, what is communities being, being, being poured into and built up and changing? And then where does that bleed into people coming in and moving other people out and saying, if you're not a part of this particular culture, you don't fit. If you're not going to change with these ways, then we're going to move you out. We're going to box you out. I want to acknowledge right here that this is really messy stuff and that I am not an expert in it. But hear me, look at me. Guys, just because we don't call something idolatry doesn't mean it's not. Right? Again, if we look through that grid and say, what do I center my life around? What do I center my identity around? What do I hold so close-handedly that I say, if this is, if this is challenge, I'm going to fight back and not first run it through the grid of God's Word and the, and the Holy Spirit's conviction and the community that we're a part of that hopefully... Lord willing, is comprised of people that don't look and talk and live exactly like we do and say, um, man, maybe I don't understand everything. I need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. I need to ask some other people how they experience this, how they understand what's going on here, how the gospel informs this community, how there's a cultural engagement, and where is there an idolatry confrontation? And where does that exist in my own heart? Because sometimes it's a societal thing. And it's usually, in that case, also made up of individual idolatry. Again, guys, let's be real here with each other, okay? Look Look at me and ask yourself this question. Where does my work and my hobbies center around something other than the good news of Jesus? Where is there idolatry at root in my own heart? Right? Oh, we don't have idolatry in our day. We don't have little statues. No, we just drive around in them. <laughs> right? We just, we just carve out our entire Sunday afternoon or Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon to, you know, sit in front of. Right? We have all kinds of idolatry. And trust me, as I've been preparing this sermon, the Holy Spirit hasn't let me off the hook. I have been smacked in the face with the idolatry that I'm so easily just turn my, put blinders on toward. And God's saying, where are you replacing me with other things? Where are you orienting your entire life around other things that are at work where you're replacing your relationship and your identity with God? And again, it's sometimes really good things. Your family Right? Family is a good thing. There's a lot we're told about what it means to be a godly 
husband or wife or son or daughter or mother or father. And yet, as John Calvin says, the human heart is an idle factory. We can turn even good things and replace them and make them ultimate things. And we can, we can, we can remove being a godly parent under God's oversight and uh, in relationship with him and say, I'm going to make that my whole life. And I'm going I'm to now have a closed fist. I'm going to now create walls around my family and, and their education or their this and their that. And I'm not going to love my neighbor as I love myself because first I'm, I'm looking out for my own. And, this, and we, it's so subtle ways we can do it in our work, in our, again, our hobbies and how we spend our time and who we relate with and how we understand ourselves and how we understand others. In most cases, it's directly connected to money in our day. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew chapter 6, in what's called the Sermon on the Mount, really addresses this really, really clearly. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy, or where thieves can break in and steal. Then he goes on, he says, you can't serve two masters. He says, no, instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, moth, nor rust can destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. Again, he says, you can't serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other, or you will despise the one and be devoted to the other. No one can serve both God and money. Now, is money a good thing given by God? It can be used to bless others, to glorify God, to, right, to empower uh, all kinds of things, good things. Yes, absolutely. But can it also become a really dangerous thing? Can it also become a life-orienting thing? Real talk, can it also become a God-replacing thing? Yes, Absolutely. And there are all kinds of other things that we would say, oh, that's not idolatry. Hear me again, look at me. God has always been so fiercely committed to rooting out and dealing with and confronting and eradicating idolatry, always. You see it back in Exodus chapter 20, what's called the great, or the, the, yeah, the, 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 the Ten Commandments of God and where, where the, he begins with saying, I am your God, I and I alone are your, am your God and you will have no other gods. And then he says, you'll have no images that replace me. You'll have, there will be no other gods in my midst. God says, I won't share myself with anything or anyone. And if you're going to be my people, then you need to find your identity and your purpose in me and me alone. And is it because God's a jealous God? Yes. But what does it mean that he's a jealous God? Does it mean he's, you know, Oprah Winfrey actually took issue with this and there's kind of famously talked a lot about it and said, oh, I don't want to, how could I surrender to a jealous God? What does that mean? Hear me, look at me. It means this. It means God loves you too much to let you settle for anything other than himself. God's not just trite. He's not just like, oh, he's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's not a little kid. He sees and knows that anything that your life is built upon, that you give your heart, your identity, your purpose to anything other than him, then you lose. And God loves us too much to let us settle for anything other than himself. 
And in fact, you, you see this on display in Exodus chapter 32. Moses goes up and he spends some, 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 some time with God and he's before him and he's, 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 he's relating with him and, and he's hearing from him and then he comes back down from the mountain. He finds that all the people that he left created this massive idol. They created a golden calf and they're worshiping it and they're doing all these things. And Aaron, his own brother, right, is, is right there leading the charge. And he did it and he did this whole thing. And what, what does Moses do? He, he burns it. He melts it down. He rebukes them. He calls it out. There's a confrontation. This golden calf is melted down and ground up into a little powder. And it's put into water and he makes the people drink it. <laughs> so that they will see that what they had been worshiping is now a bodily fluid. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. We should laugh. Like, that's the reality, right? We don't see it that way. We don't see it as a laughing matter because it's sometimes so close in our face. And let's be real. Are there not things that we worship that are ultimately bodily fluids <laughs> that, you can, I'll just say, that you can pee or poop out? <laughs> right? Food can be one. We, we can center our entire lives around, around food and, and, and some of us in, in either abstaining or indulging. And ultimately, it's something that results and ends up on the floor or in the toilet. Or, or sexual idolatry, right? Like, this kind of stuff is so silly when you stop and think, that's what I'm worshiping. Now, are those good things? Is food a good thing? Yeah. We're told that you can follow Jesus' ministry, that he eats his way through the Gospels. He, he's constantly gathered around the table that here in a moment we will come before the Lord's table and take a meal, the bread and the, and the bread of life that Jesus is, and we, and we recognize the blood poured out and we take the cup. And we, and it's so, yeah, food is really important, but when you replace God with it, it's foolish. It's idolatry. Sex is given by God to glorify him and bless us and love our spouse and to have an intimacy. But when you replace God with it, it's foolish and it's empty and it's destructive. Again, just because we don't call it idolatry doesn't mean that's not what it is. And the outcome is always always broken when we give ourselves to anything other than Jesus and his good news. When we build our lives on a foundation that is anything other than Christ and Christ alone, it has a terrible result. And that's what you see even on display here where they, um, they continue to come together in verse 28. They respond to their idolatry being called out and they're angry and they come together and it says that in, uh, in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonia. And all these things are going on. And then down in verse 32, again, you see, now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. 
Idolatry always leads to confusion and to chaos. I love that picture that, that, that it's so broken that some people are coming in and their idolatry is maybe different from someone else's and they're, st- they're taking a stand and they're saying, who is Paul to call us out on this? My identity is built on this. My whole family is shaped by this and they're yelling one thing and then someone else is saying, my workplace is getting challenged. I'm, and, they're, and they're saying different things and there's confusion and then some other guy's like, I don't even know why I'm protesting but I'm just protesting because I want to fit in and my idolatry is, is being accepted by everyone else. So I'm just going to slide in here and try to be like everyone else. And, that, and it's silly. And it always is. Again, look around at our society, at our culture. Do you not see idols warring with one another? Confusion just, just, just ruling the day? Because we've replaced God with other things. We've replaced the creator with created things. And that's always the result of idolatry, of centering ourselves, of finding our identity and our purpose around anything or anyone other than our good God who created order out of chaos, out of nothingness. He decided where the oceans would stop and where the earth would begin. He is a God of order. He is a God of clarity. And then when sin broke into the world, not God ruled and reigned. When we said, God, I don't want to be a part of you and a part of your structure, chaos ruled the day on a family level, on an interpersonal level, on an individual level, how we view ourselves, how we relate with the world around us. Chaos rules the day, and you see that throughout the entire scriptures. But God doesn't stand off and wag his finger and mock us. (laughs) Hear me. He enters into it. Amen. Jesus takes on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, broke into our brokenness and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And ultimately, he took that brokenness, that sin on an individual level, on a societal level, on a cosmic level, on a global level, and he died on the cross. And he put sin to death. And then when he victoriously rose from the dead and he calls all people to put their faith in him and their trust in him to put death and the result of sin and idolatry to death and to find our identity and our hope and our purpose to be restored with God and with one another and with all of life, with our work and our hobbies and everything that we do. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he promised a day ultimately where all things will be restored. And that's where we live right now in light of the promise that we see in Revelation where Jesus himself in chapter 21, verse 5, is seated on the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. What has been broken, what has been distorted, is being made new in the person and work of Jesus. So that now as we respond to him, as we come around him, we need to ask this question on an individual on an individual level, God, where have I replaced you? Where have I oriented my life, found my identity, found my work in something other than you? On a societal level, we need to ask God, in what ways are you calling us as a people to push against evil, against idolatry that we have embraced and grown accustomed to? God, what does it mean to be your people? What does it mean to be a light in a dark world? God, what does it mean to find 
comfort and peace and order as your people worshiping you. The good news of Jesus, where he always encounters culture and confronts idolatry. Let's pray together as we respond individually and communally to him. Heavenly Father, we surrender to you. We acknowledge that we need you. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in different places where we've walked through scriptures that are incredibly comforting. We've walked through places where you've brought us that are incredibly intellectually challenging, where we needed to really dig in and, and acknowledge our need to understand you more rightly. And then times like this morning where we're just challenged or we're convicted. And thank you that you don't leave us there. But Lord, you lead us to a place of seeing ourselves so clearly in our desperate need for you and then seeing your incredible, gracious provision in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would lead us right now to acknowledge ways we've settled by replacing you. Holy Spirit, we ask and trust that you will lead us to the foot of the cross and to the good news of Jesus where our identity and our purpose can be found in him and is secure in him and in him alone. In his name we pray, amen.